0: We're going to finish up the book of Joshua today. Last week, we stopped right in the middle of Joshua's last speech. He's giving a speech to all of Israel, but especially represented by their leaders. And he left them with a question, or really a statement in some ways. It was, choose who you are going to serve this nation. Are you going to go after all the the gods and influences of of the past that have been a part of Israel's history, or are you going to choose to follow the one true God? Are you going to choose to follow Yahweh? And what we're looking at today is Israel's answer, Israel's response to this. And what I want to highlight, and it's just been amazing watching how God's worked this in studying this text, but also in preparing for a wedding at the same time, is that you'll see that witness is a key aspect to this text. As Israel is moving into a formal declaration of their relationship with God, the idea of a witness, the weight of a witness, is paramount for how things are going to move forward. And if you've ever been to a wedding before in our culture, the people who are gathered there are called on to be Witnesses. If you've ever sat in a wedding, you're there to witness the union of a man and a woman together as they're joined together in marriage. And I've gone to plenty of weddings. This is my like first, one of my first real official weddings that I've I've officiated as as a pastor. And it struck me how lightly I've taken that role. Because you kind of come into a wedding, you sit down, you watch them go through, and especially if you're younger. Any young guys out here who are like under the age of 15, you're just sitting there being like, can this get over like soon? I just want to get out of here. And, and we're there and it's great to be able to see that. But I realize that in our culture, there's a lack of weight to what it means to witness someone. I mean, you think about witness the last, if you've been to a marriage or something like that, some formal witnessing of some type, it's real easy just to be there in the moment and then, all oh, right, sweet, yay, we get to move on. But really, there's a charge in there for us as we witness two people getting married together that we're to hold them accountable to the promises they're making before God. And I I can't help but wonder if more people held highly the weight of a witness, how there would be a change maybe, not only just in marriage relationships lasting, but us as a church, because that's why today is important. This is why Sunday gatherings are so important, because we come together and we're witnesses as a family to the majesty of Jesus Christ. Our culture struggles so much with this because we struggle with commitments in in a huge way. In fact, when someone is a witness against us, man, that can come across as unloving, uncaring, emotionally toxic, annoying, and frustrating. And yet sometimes it's the people who bring the truth that we need to hear that saves us from a greater disaster. And so Joshua ends by establishing the power of a witness and should point us to our identity as a church as witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so we need to reestablish the power of a witness in our church. And that begins right now, today, as we look at the end of Joshua. So if you turn with me to Joshua 24, 16. And we're going to just read through 21. We're going to read the first part. It says, Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed, And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So we're going to tackle the the first part of this. We're first going to look at how Joshua establishes the weight of commitment to the people of Israel. And then we're going to look at how he establishes the weight of witness. And before we go any farther, um, let's pray together as we go before God's word. God in heaven, we want this time um, to be a sacred moment before you. Jesus, as we read your word, um, God, let us come under the authority of it. And Jesus, would it work in our heart. I just pray, Spirit, that you would work in this moment as we sing songs together, as we uh, read your word together, as we uh, partake in communion together, uh, as we be the church together. God, work in our hearts. Help us to understand you just a little more right now. Um, And God, would this carry us through into this week and help us be that witness to you. Um, to all the people who are here in this city, and it's your name we pray, Amen. So Joshua first is establishing the weight of commitment. So Israel answers, and when you look at the the previous passage, Joshua laid out for them this divine story—a divine story about how God pursued Israel, and it was by only by God's power that anything good had come about for Israel, and. Israel's acknowledging that. They, in many ways, are just repeating right back to Joshua what he laid out. And they said, no, God has done all these things. And they declare their decision. They will not forsake the Lord. They will serve the Lord. And they are also imitating their leader, Joshua. And that's where we get our famous verse from in uh, Joshua 24:15 at the very end where Joshua states before them, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the people, in, in very much a resounding way, are saying, yes, we affirm what Joshua is saying, and we are going to do the same. And if there seems to be this rhythm as you read through this passage where it's this back and forth going on, it's extremely intentional. In fact, it was uh, very much in ancient tradition. Ancient treaties were formatted much in this way, and I can't help but believe that God established covenant in such a way that people outside looking in would understand what was going on and also understand the weight of the authority of God and the relationship, the seriousness of the relationship, that God is inviting Israel into. So, Israel has stated it. They will not forsake the Lord. They will serve the Lord like Joshua. And is that it? I mean, they've given their yes. They say, yep, we're going to do this. I mean, after all, they've been following God for several years now. This is one of the high marks of Israel pursuing after God. And it would almost seem like it would be easy for Joshua to say at that point, great, awesome, you've said yes, let's move on. But Joshua doesn't do that. And I think this is a, a good place for us to reflect on the weightiness of what it means to pursue and to follow God. How often, especially within a, a church setting, can we throw up a casual prayer that we can say, yeah, sure, I'll follow God doing this, that there are all these commitments and things that we decide to do and we treat them lightly and we take the weightiness of God and who he is and his divine authority and we treat it as something that is light, we quickly give a yes without understanding maybe the cost and the weight of God and his authority. And so I can't help but for myself resonate with Israel so much in that because they know what's right. They've been doing it. And so it's easy to be like, yes, these are the things that we're going to do. So what was the weight? What is the weight for Israel as they come to this place? It's that they continue generation after generation to serve the Lord and not forsake him. Uh, think about that for a minute. It's hard enough to make a commitment that lasts one lifetime, let alone one that's supposed to influence and impact your family continually, generation after generation after generation. So this isn't just, this isn't meant to be something casually entered into. There is a weight of commitment that is put on this. And we see Joshua establish this in this kind of odd response that he gives. Because Israel affirms everything that he said. They also agree with Joshua where they say, hey, therefore we will also serve the Lord for he is our God. But then in verse 19 what happens? But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God he is a jealous God. And this, this kind of is confrontational in, in many ways. And it's, it should cause us to wrestle in some ways. What's Joshua trying to do here? Is this just more of a ceremonial thing where he's almost calling them the man up of like, you know what, I'm going to kind of put out this soft rejection it's going to cause you to, to step up and maybe commit more? Is it that? Or is Joshua serious about what he's saying? And this is... This is where, when you're reading a passage of Scripture, especially in the book of Joshua, there's a context even to this book found in Deuteronomy where the previous leader, Moses, he actually prophesied about this. He actually, through God through Moses, told Israel what their future was going to be. And this is found in Deuteronomy 31, 19 through 21. It says this, Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel, "...put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring." For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. Joshua was there, okay? Joshua was there hearing these words, and so now they've come to the promised land. God's given Israel all these good things, and he's sitting there being like, I know what the truth is and I know what's going to happen. And I believe we're we're given hints in this last chapter that indicates they may have already been kind of holding on and worshiping other gods. And so Joshua has confronted this with them, and, and look at their history. Look at the history of Israel. Yes, there are good moments, but every time God has called Israel higher into a covenant relationship, every time, Israel's broken that covenant, and they've gone against God. In fact, throughout the divine story, man's inability is just again and again highlighted. And where does that leave us? Maybe you have been in that place in following God and following Jesus where you've come to that place where you're like, yeah, I get this. I'm the one who has that history and that pattern of repeat where I've broken what God's called me to do. I reject him. I turn away from him. So what hope is there? Charles Spurgeon was this old-time preacher back in the 1800s, and he has this quote that I think captures what's going on. It is alleged that this will drive men to despair, and our reply is that the kind of despair to which drives men, it, to which it drives men, is most desirable and solitary. Solitary. I can't say that word. If you're not well-versed in old English, let me break it down a little bit of what he's saying. He's basically saying this kind of despair is actually what we need. And what, what, that doesn't make sense. What, to drive us to a point where we've got nothing less, we're left hopeless? Yes. Because when you come to the end of yourself, then you can actually find in hope in something other than yourself because you simply aren't enough. So let's continue on because we're going to see this unfold throughout the rest of the chapter. So we, we see the, the weight that's established First of all, in, in the answer, in the response, um, and to the commitment that Israel is entering into. But we also see the establishment of the weight of witnesses. So let's read 22 through 28 again. It says, Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve in his voice, we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord, and he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. There's a huge amount of weight of responsibility that's going on here. And Joshua makes it even plain right before that, when he, when he mentions the weight of what's going on here, he's like, look, if you break your covenant then what's going to happen? You are going to receive the same type of, of violence and weight that was put on the people that you just wiped out in this land. That same kind of thing's going to come upon you if you break the covenant. And so he puts this weight of, of witness upon them, first of all, by establishing themselves as a witness. And isn't that a weight? Have you ever been in that moment where you've, feel like, man, I'm, I've got to put it on my shoulders to make something happen, to achieve something. And you're a witness in yourself, and oftentimes it's within our own pride. We're trying to measure up. We're trying to accomplish something. And so similarly, Israel first is a witness to themselves. Are they going to prove themselves true? Are they going to put away the gods? Are they going to put away those things that they're worshiping other than the one true God? It's up to their moral ability. It's up to them to live righteous. And so Israel identify as a witness. Yes, we are witnesses to ourselves and they take up the cause. But that's not the only witness that we see here. First we see themselves as witnesses, but then we see the written word of God. So Joshua adds these covenantal words to Moses and what he's already written in the law. And we're seeing what, what we have here today is being formed in this moment as these words are being written down. And they're to bear witness if they choose to go a different way, if they choose to break covenant or break that deep relationship with God and choose to go a different way. Even think about it. Why they eventually titled this the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why? Because it's a testament. It's testifying to Something It's testifying to the truth of God and how it pertains to our lives. And so here they are. They have this witness also that is a part of what's going on, the witness of the word. And then we've got a stone. I mean, I've never had this in our culture, ever a stone uses representation, except there are some times where we see that, right? A tombstone that it's a witness, it bears witness to the life of someone and what's going on. Memorials that we see carved out of stone to remind us to be a witness to actions that have happened. And so I think when we think of it in that way, we also see here a stone. So what what does a stone represent? First of all, the permanence of God's creation. God's creation is seen as a witness throughout all of Scripture. The earth, in many ways, reflects back to us the effects of our devotion or disregard of God and his authority. This is why Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are with excuse. And in Romans, it's set up in such a way that it's like, man, you can see the majesty of God. You can see that he's at work, and that in and of itself is a witness. But we also see the permanence of God's witness represented in this stone. This has been seen multiple times within Israel's story, within the divine story that's happened. If you go back a couple of generations, Jacob anoints a rock where God met him in a divine encounter of promise. God provides water to Israel from a rock. That rock was a showing of God's divine provision. And then even in Joshua's, we've read Israel going into the promised land. They took stones from the Jordan River to set up a monument near Gilgal for what purpose? What purpose? It's a divine reminder of God's fulfilled promises. So that when their kids ask, what the heck are these rocks here piled up? That the adults and the parents can teach them in that moment and say, this is about God. They witness about God and his provisions and his promises. And I think lastly, it's the permanence of God's strength as well. And that type of strength as a witness brought against Israel, if they default on their covenantal relationship so we go through all this we see the weight of witnesses we also see uh, the weight of commitment that's being here and I hope at this point like this begins piling up like feel it on yourself the weight of the commitment that's going on here the weight of witness that's happening because it just feels more and more like how is this going to turn out and can you actually bear underneath the weight So let's finish up this passage looking at verse 29 through 33. It says, After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at timnath Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob brought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phineas, or sorry, the town of Phineas his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So, this is the conclusion to the book. And at first, it might seem, all right, it's just running out the end of the story. Joshua dies. People who are around him, the elders who served with him, who had seen God in his great works, they, they were faithful to God. They kept going. Seems like a nice little bow, and that's it. And yet, there is a powerful statement being made at this very end of the book. It ties Joshua to the whole rest of the divine narrative that's being orchestrated by God that leads to Jesus. And that is seen in the bones of Joseph that's mentioned. So if you go to, all the way back to Genesis 50, 24 through 26, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So rewinding, Joseph, he is at this point patriarch leader of Israel at this time. And he has made his brothers promise, hey, take my bones and bring them back to the land that God had promised. And again, it might seem like, okay, that's cool, so God actually has fulfilled that promise. That's step number one we see at the end of Joshua is God again fulfilling another promise. But then fast forward to the New Testament, and we see this come up again. In Hebrews eleven twenty 20 through 22, it says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And if you've ever read Hebrews 11, that faith that was in there, that faith that's talking about Joseph and his bones is tied directly and made permanent when Jesus Christ would arrive on the scene. And so even at the end of Joshua, in the Old Testament here, there's this big arrow pointing to the fact and upholding that, you know what, Israel's not going to be enough, but guess what, Jesus is coming. There's a Messiah coming, and they are called to keep hoping in the promise that God gave Adam and Eve after they fell, after they sinned, after they defaulted on their relationship. God made a promise. He said, there's going to be a seed. There's going to be someone who's going to come and he's going to make all things right. He's going to defeat Satan. He's going to defeat the snake. And so Israel is always in this place of anticipating and having faith of someone greater to come. Because the reality is, is Israel would not measure up. Joshua is a bright point in the history of Israel. Flip to the next book in Judges. And they tank within a couple of generations. They are not able to live up under the weight of their own morality. So this speaks, the bones of Joseph here at the end, speaks and anticipates this enduring faith that leads to righteousness. This speaks of a greater witness because Israel wasn't enough, so someone had to be enough. And that's why Jesus came, because we're not enough, because we fail all the time. Jesus lived that perfect life, and he lived it on our behalf, and he fulfilled and became and was witnessed as the one who could fulfill what we couldn't. He fought the battle we couldn't fight. He lived the life we couldn't live on our behalf, and he died the death we deserved. But then he rose again, and he paved the way for life eternal. So in 1 John two one says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So notice what's happening here. Jesus becomes our witness because of what he did for us. He's witnessing the fact that we are made righteous in him. He is our perfect advocate, and that's where we have hope. So that when we fall, when we screw up, it's we look to Jesus. And that's why the life of a Christian is one of repentance because we're not enough and so we look to Jesus who is enough. And when we fall, we go right back to his feet and we claim him and we claim his life. And that brings us to who we are as a church, that we are called then to be witnesses because of what Christ did for us. So when our faith is in Jesus... He becomes a witness for us instead of against us, and he is the foundation upon which we are saved. So 1 Peter 2 4 through 6 says this As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you that yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying. In Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So instead of there being this crazy rock of judgment sent to crush us, instead our faith in Jesus Christ means we're able to stand on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. I love this quote from Christopher Love. He says, grace is understanding that God is a better savior than you are a sinner. We are witnesses of Jesus. And so I want to bring this home, witnessing what Jesus has done for us, by looking just at running through the first few uh, chapters of Acts and key verses. You see in, first of all, Acts 1.8, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he gives this charge to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then in Acts 2.32, Peter's preaching a sermon. He says, this God, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Continue to the next chapter, Acts 3.15, it says, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts 5.32, it says, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So we see this, the forming of the church. This identity is placed upon the church where we are no longer witnesses of ourselves. We are witnesses to something greater. We are witnesses of Jesus Christ, and we are called to do that in our everyday life. This is why we form this identity statement as a church where we say that we are a family of missionary servants sent to be and make disciples. And so we need to, We need to take on this call. We need to take the weight of a witness and bear that witness to Jesus Christ and bear that witness to the broken and fallen lives all around us who are lost in darkness, who are wearing the weight on their shoulders, and we need to point them to Jesus so he can remove the weight of sin and judgment. We are called to take this seriously and reverently. And that is why we gather here every single week. The reason we gather as a family is so that we can look each other in the eyes, so that we can sing on a Sunday, so we can come under God's word and we can say yes, Jesus is all. Yes, Jesus took the weight of my sin and removed it off of me and he has given me life and life eternally. And we make this a time of resounding worship and we give witness together. And that is crucial today. It used to be in churches, back in early church history, and there's some churches who still this today, where communion was in the place of the pulpit. It's something I just learned, and the reason why is because it was the weight of the witness that we take as communion. That's one of the reasons we gather every week, is because of communion. It is this deep, reverent moment where we encounter Jesus together, and we lay witness to the fact that his body was broken, that little wafer is broken, We dip it into the juice and we drink that juice to remember his blood that was shared because the only foundation we have as a people to stand upon is what communion represents. That's why we do it every week as a church is because it's that serious. And it's something that while it's serious, it's also joyous. Why? Because we've been set free. And so our drive as a church is to continue seeing others set free to bear witness of jesus christ to others so as you leave here today remember that take up that call see the weight of a witness that it's no longer you witnessing against yourself you witness jesus christ we have gospel communities that gather every week and the reason that we do that is because we want to live and be the church outside of a sunday gathering that what we do here continues and it's perpetuated, that we are the church 24-7. And so, during your times in gospel community, I encourage you, witness the acts of Jesus and what he's doing in your life. And some days that just means you go back to the word and you're having a hard week and you're like, I'm trusting this is true. And I'm trusting what Jesus Christ did is true. And so, what we do here on a Sunday, we witness Jesus. What we do in our small groups, our gospel communities, we witness. What we start doing within our workplace, what we start doing within our spheres of influence, what we start doing on a regular daily basis is like the apostles of the first church, we bear witness to Jesus. Let's pray. God in heaven, I, your spirit can only do the work in our hearts that we need right now. God, forgive us where we've taken lightly our witness. Even what we do here on a Sunday morning, God, or Sunday afternoon, whatever day of the week that we gather. God, help us to remember that we have this joyous, but this also this glorious ability to be able to witness you, Jesus Christ. Would we never tire of it? God, would we look at the, the, just even the creation around us as as we live in this amazing state and let it well up in our hearts to shout your praises because of who you are and what you've done for us. God, and I pray that if there is anyone here today who who God is underneath the weight of their own witness, living life on their own power, drive them to that place of surrendering all to you, Jesus, because you did the work we couldn't do. So, Jesus, thank you for your gospel message. Thank you that we can witness it. Thank you that we can in just a few minutes. Sing as a witness. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.